This New America NYC event took place on November 7, 2017, and is entitled The Quantum Spy, a conversation with David Ignatius and Karen Greenberg. One of the questions you raise in the book is what if you, they get into a situation, which you think is happening, I think, that all these wonderfully bright creative technologists are devising amazing things with computers, whether it's being able to do global, uh, facial recognition on a global level in a nanosecond, or whatever other kind of computing, searching, et cetera, you want to talk about. But then the upshot of all that is the government will come to them and say, sorry, you're not going to do this anymore. So, so is that the world we live in? Is, like, is that a fantasy? Was that just a question on your mind? Or is that sort of the dark underside of what it means to be intelligent and creative in the technological world? Well, so, so there's a, what I want to say is a, a new America a question that's embedded in this novel, and that is how does the U.S. government fund and oversee technology that has application to national security? And most interesting technologies do end up having a connection. And I just wandered into the argument that's taking place among people who were working hard on, on building a quantum computer, and it's a, a, almost an obsessive issue for every major tech company. Microsoft has a program, Google has a program, go down the list, they're, they're all involved. And, and as Microsoft's uh, top engineers said to me, we want this to be open. We, we feel that America's strength is the openness of its scientific and technological establishment. That's why we're powerful, that is our national security is we're the, we're the open place where people want to come. And if you, if you turn these programs black, classify them so that access is restricted and your lab can't have foreign nationals and that brilliant young Chinese uh, computer scientist is going to have to go home, we're going to lose something. That was the argument that was, that was made to me passionately by people from Microsoft and, and other places. The, the counter-argument is obvious, that these technologies really do make a difference in terms of our future security. They're secrets. You know, that, that once a government-funded program, a program that IARPA, the Intelligence Advanced Research Projects Agency, has been funding, once that program f finds something that is precious and special, that we have a responsibility to hold on to it. It's just too, it's too valuable to our country's security, so it, it needs to go into the classified space. That's an argument that takes place in the book. I, uh, the, what I love about fiction, uh, I'd say to Karen and to the audience, is that unlike the columns that I write, 750 words, and I have to say at the end, well, this is what I think, you know, do this, do that. In a novel, you don't have, you're not prescriptive. You just describe what the dilemma is. And then you let the reader answer it. I mean, what do you, what do you think? Do you think these should remain open? Do you think the secrets are too precious? Uh, you know, and you get, you get to, 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 to solve that puzzle. But the, there, there, there was that interesting policy issue um, that was present for me throughout uh, re researching the book. So let's talk about the Chinese a little bit. <clears throat> and let's just start with a big picture, which is there are some people who would say that the war on terror, 
and the post 9-11 national security frame of mind of this country was one giant unfortunate distraction from what we heard about before 9-11 was the coming contest between the two superpowers, uh, the United States and China. So the first question, I guess, is in, do you see it that way? Do you see 9-11 and its aftermath as being a distraction from the growing China and its power um, in the world? Um, there's so many things to say about 9-11 about, about and what it, it did to our country. I, I couldn't say it was a distraction. Uh, my favorite uh, observation about 9-11 comes from my father, who's now 97, who not long after uh, likened our country to a spinning top. And he said that, you know, when you think of a top spinning uh, on a table, you can give the top a real whack. But if it's spinning fast, it quickly comes back to its center position. It has that incredible internal stabilizing quality. But uh, if you give a top that's spinning more slowly a whack, it wobbles more and more. And I, I feel, you know, 9-11 whacked our top, and we discovered as a country something that we now feel deeply. It's the center of our national story. Um, we're not spinning as fast as we once did. You know, the coherence, the cohesion, uh, the in intensity uh, of, our, of our spin is diminished, and that's something that, that really worries me. So, uh, you know, I, uh, again, 9-11 I, I, was su such a catastrophic event, and the wobble magnified, uh, but that probably had, that did have to do with things that, 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 uh, that preceded it. We did come at the end of that to the reckoning that our president embodies today, tomorrow, uh, which is the encounter with this rising China. Uh, China last month, Xi Jinping last month, um, announced China's arrival as a great power that seeks a global role. Uh, and one thing that, that the Trump administration has done is to essentially say, we're prepared to accede to your central role, not dominant, but your central role in, in the world. So long as you are a responsible partner with us, North Korea has become the test of that. I don't think, Karen, that, that there's any way for our country to avoid that reckoning. I think, you know, the essence of good policy is, is going to be to to be wise in working with other countries to establish limits not to exceed the rulemaking function to the to the Chinese. I, you know, to finish this answer, uh, I think one of the really unfortunate things that this administration did, but then Hillary Clinton says she would have done it too, was to uh, vaporize the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was the structure whereby we were going to set the rules for trade in Asia, you know, ensure that the Chinese flowed through institutions that we had helped shape. And, you know, why we chucked that overboard, I just, I think it's, it was a significant mistake. You spent some time um, <clears throat> at least alluding to or suggesting rather deftly what the Eastern mind or the Chinese mind is or is capable of. And a lot of the book is about that. Your Chinese characters are very, they, they have these sort of telltale signs of a kind of deeper wisdom at times. 
um, at times a competitiveness about America and exceptionalism about who they are vis-a-vis -vis who we are. You know, don't worry about those Americans. They're not as smart as we are. You can read that between the lines. So I guess my question is, is has many sides to it, but one of them is, how did you go about becoming intrigued by and learning about the Chinese mindset? And, um, and what are your thoughts about the American versus or Western versus Chinese or Eastern mind, character? The, the, uh, the thing that I think I'm, I'm proudest of in this novel is the, the, the Chinese uh, in, intelligence agency characters, uh, the person who, who runs the agency and then one of his senior uh, deputies. Um, and his name is Carlos. Who, who calls himself <laughs> Carlos, who, who is a Che Guevara wannabe and has operated so long in Mexico that he's taken on sort of uh, Mexican-like uh, uh, qualities. Um, these characters, uh, I, I'm sure, couldn't exist in real life, but I hope that they exist for the reader on the page, that they're, that they're believable. Um, and just trying to imagine um, Chinese intelligence officers who would, who would play by the rules. I mean, the Chinese have been writing about intelligence now for several thousand years. I mean, there really aren't more interesting um, uh, writings on intelligence than Sun Tzu is famous, famously the strategist who says, um, you know, disguise your power when you're, when you're uh, strong appear to be weak, when you're weak appear to be strong. You know, always um, deceive and, and dissemble. That that's the, the 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 path of the of the powerful. So, you know, these are not uh, new ideas about about how Chinese intelligence operates. As I got into working on the book, and again, this is you know the joy for me of of doing this work is I get to I get to uh, read deeply into subjects. So I began to seek out people, Americans and Chinese, who had who knew this world. And it, it takes a while to find those people, you know, uh, and you have to be careful, and so they're not named in any way uh, in my acknowledgments, and I'm not going to say anything about them, but except to say that they un understand this adversary, the Ministry of State Security, deeply. And so I just kept learning uh, from, from them, and as I say in the book, they were kind enough to actually read a draft of the book and suggest what was what was plausible and what wasn't. But, uh, you know, the one fascinating fact about the Ministry of State Security is that it has been a principal target of Xi Jinping's anti-corruption drive. He has used the anti-corruption drive, as we know, to go after his enemies. But high on that enemies list, maybe at the very top, has been the MSS, the Ministry of State Security, which he mistrusts as a Shanghainese uh, factional instrument. Uh, I mean, all of Xi's uh, partners, allies, um, mistrust uh, that world. So it's significantly diminished as a, a power player in China in the last few years. And you know, that was part of what I was playing with. To, you know, the book opens with uh, the uh, recruitment of a, a Ministry of State Security officer by Harris Chang, the character that uh, Karen mentioned uh, in uh, in Singapore, uh, and um, you know that was fun to write about. I am just sure that in real life, 
there have been many similar pitches to people who were very vulnerable in this anti-corruption moment. I mean, you know, it's a rare Chinese official who hasn't salted away a little money somewhere. And, you know, the ability to use that and, and go after people's vulnerabilities, that's what intelligence services do. So, uh, anyway, that, that, well, that was I just, fun. My own little footnote to that is that I noticed when I was reading this book, I was becoming increasingly paranoid. No, seriously, because no character really knows who to trust, and the reader doesn't really know what story, which story that which character is telling is the actual story, and so it just makes you think that everybody's a spy around you. That everybody's well. what you're saying. <laughs> so, but um, I want to talk a little bit about the difference between writing nonfiction and and writing fiction. And you write at one point in this book about one character I won't mention, when he is confronted with a particularly difficult moral dilemma, and all of a sudden all his options disappear, he feels released. And one of the things I was thinking reading this book was that there's a way in which you as author are searching for sort of like push away everything and try to find some, some freedom and some place to breathe. And I just wondered if, if I mean you write, I assume, you spend some days where you're writing both fiction and nonfiction during those same days. And if you are, how do you think about which part of you goes into one and which part of the other, and, and do they help one another and, and help you uh, to write both of them? Well, that, that's a, that's a, a perceptive uh, question and goes to the center of my experiences as a writer. My fiction and nonfiction support each other. The, research that I do for my columns often opens doors or suggests subjects that I then pursue in my fiction. You know, the thing that I've loved about writing fiction, I think you know this, uh, Karen, because you've, you've done it, and anybody else in the audience who's had the experience I think would say the same thing. What writes your novel, your short story, is your preconscious. It is not an act of, of conscious cognition. You know, just it's like it's closer to dreaming than it is to uh, you know, an active uh, grit your teeth, sit on the edge of your chair piece of work. You know, it's like playing a sport where you just you just lose track yourself of time. You're just in in the moment and the flow. So obviously, as we know from whatever thing that we do that gives us joy, that sense of being lost in in your work is just uh, it's such intense pleasure, and that. You know, when it's going well, that, that's what uh, writing fiction is for me. I, you know, I'm just a hack novelist. I don't mean to, but you know, I get lost in that, in that process. Um, my journalism is different in that, as it's 750 words, and I, you know, it has to have a point. But you know, I, I because I'm a deadline junkie, um, you know, I, I often just push it. I just did something completely crazy. I don't see Rachel. Salzman here, but she watched me do something completely insane this this afternoon. Where, you know, I had already written a column for tomorrow, and I just got some interesting new information. I thought, oh man, let's just let's just do a new one. And I had I had no time. I was in the green room. I was writing this in the green room of the Charlie Rose show, and it was like tick tick tick. And you know, where is it? And it was just nuts. But you know, I was not consciously aware of writing that column. You know, when it was done, I was like, oh, you know, is that you know. Asked my editor, "Does that make any sense?" Yeah, yeah, that's great. So you know the the you know in my journalism, I find a little bit of that. But I the uh, 
you know, that uh, play of the two kinds of writing has been very nourishing for me emotionally. And uh, as I said to Karen, uh, I say at the end of the novel, uh, in the acknowledgments, uh, it was 30 years ago this year that I wrote my first, published my first novel. And people liked it. It was like a shockeroo. I was so scared that people would hate it. But so I thought um, to have any chance at really being a, a novelist, you need to quit your day job. You need to stop being a journalist. And, and I just didn't, I, I was chicken. You know, I had young children and I had lots of bills to pay. And, you know, I just, I was afraid of rolling the dice, being and I just thought I'd never make enough money. So I didn't, I, I kept doing both. And so I've written these 10 novels, kind of, you know, uh, in my spare time, I don't, you ask, do I do two in the same day? I try not to, because they're different enough. I ended up deciding that I was happy that I never made that choice, that I, you know, I kind of straddle the two things. I'm sure my fiction isn't as good as it might have been, but, you know, I love my life as a, as a journalist, as a, as a commentator. I mean, you know, people, that's what people know about me now is I, I'm a, I mean, they're very, the audience for my fiction is very small, but there are a lot more people who read my journalism. So, you know, the two coexist, and I'm glad I never chose. So that brings me to the third cloned part of you, which is the, um, the opera librettist, whatever you call it. So I would have started tonight by saying, you know, you have two careers, this is amazing, how does anybody do that? But really, also opera? So can you tell us a little bit about your opera and how you got there and what part of you that is? So this was a one-shot experience, but it was a you know, wonderful one. Uh, as I sure is becoming increasingly transparent, you know, I, I just love to, you know, take the risk of, of this time you really blew it. You know, this, this time you really have made a fool of yourself. So um, I got a, a contact uh, in 2014 from a young American composer named Mohammed Fairuz, who said the Dutch National Opera uh, wants to commission an opera about Machiavelli. And I, I'd never met him. I knew nothing about this, this guy. And he said, I've been reading your columns, and you know, I know that you read Machiavelli, and I think you're the person to write this libretto. And it was sort of crazy. I mean, like, what? So, uh, you know, I'm not an opera buff. I, you know, I like, but I, I thought about it a little bit, and I thought, you know, here's a, you know, for a middle-aged guy, what was I, almost 65, you know, here's a chance to really try something genuinely different and, you know, maybe make a real ass of yourself. So it was irresistible. Uh, so, so I, uh, it, this opera's called The New Prince, and it imagines three new chapters of The Prince that are written on the 500th anniversary of its publication after Machiavelli's death was published. He'd been dead five years when it was published. Uh, and it's, the three new chapters are bracketed by a, a prologue in his Florence in 1512, and then an epilogue with him and his muse. If you've ever seen the opera Tales of Hoffman, it has the same structure as that opera. So, uh, you know, there I am in March uh, in Amsterdam at the Dutch National Opera, holding my wife's hand so, you know, I practically broke the bones in her hand. I was so, so nervous that this, I never hadn't seen it. And, uh, you know, then I got to take uh, two bows before a standing ovation. 
uh, uh, this opera house. So it was, um, you know, it was, I mean, I, just to say the last thing about this, in writing fiction for modern tastes, in writing short stories, in writing screenplays, there's a kind of astringent quality and, you know, irony. You know, we, we don't like anything too gooey uh, these days. Our tastes just don't go in that direction, at least most things that you see. Opera almost requires that you be sentimental, you know, that you, you have to reach for, you know, what's life all about, what's... And uh, I, that's the part I, that I like the most. Uh, I'd love for people to see this opera. I hope it'll be performed in, uh, in I say this is a piece of writing. I'm as proud of it as anything that I ever, ever wrote. But you can go on YouTube, if you want to go on YouTube and put in David Ignatius, Mohammed Fayrouz, and The New Prince, you can listen to some of the arias. But one of the things that's really interesting about that opera and the little bit I was able to read about it is something you just alluded to, which is how much it's about power. And, and when I was thinking about just your body of work, if you take it all as one, that this obsession with power and how it plays out at the top level, but also in the interstices of how these agencies work. And so my question is, A, you must know that, otherwise you wouldn't have agreed to do this new Prince. And B, how you, this is a very big question, but one of the concerns I think a lot of um, political theorists and pundits have, you know, sophisticated pundits have today is, how has power and how we understand it changed? And I know that's a very big question, but I don't, do think it consumes you, and so I'd just like you to riff a little bit on how you're thinking today about misused power or yeah. well-used power or, or not? You know, I, 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 I try not to be grossly partisan, but I have to say, I think we're seeing a, a, a misuse of presidential power, the likes of which I, I don't remember in my lifetime. Uh, you know, I, I am shocked every day by things that this president does. So, you know, I, I need to be honest about that. I, you know, I, I worry about our country uh, in a way that I don't think that I ever, ever have. Uh, I was uh, letting my mind uh, wander uh, when the time of Trump's inauguration as to whether he was a Machiavellian character. Machiavelli famously believe that, you know, manipulation is part of being a, a good prince. He, you know, he, he think, thought that sometimes uh, it, it's okay to lie um, if, you know, that's part of maintaining power. Um, in that sense, he was almost describing the, you know, the people that he liked, he admired. Cesar Borgia, you know, history records him as a dreadful, uh, murderous uh, uh, ruler. But uh, Machiavelli thought he embodied virtue, that he had the strength that lead, makes for a, a, good, a good ruler. So you, you think on one level, um, there are qualities about Trump that are, that are Machiavellian. As I got deeper into trying to sort this out in writing the opera, I decided that the one, and I think people make a terrible mistake in trying to... Um, imply that Machiavelli really didn't mean it. You know, there's a, you know, there's a, a new book by a wonderful uh, Machiavelli scholar that essentially makes this argument, he's being ironic. That he, uh, and uh, I think that that's wrong. Uh, 
I think the one redeeming quality uh, of Machiavelli is, and the thing that makes him un-Trumpian, is that he was absolutely insistent on telling the truth. You know, where, where people lie to leaders, flatter them, tell them that, you know, if you're strong, you'll bring the reign of, of heaven on earth and serve God and man and you know, all that syrupy stuff that people wrote for princes. Machiavelli said, basically, baloney. Um, this is about power. It's about the ruthlessness that's needed to maintain power. He was merciless with himself. He was, he was a, what's interesting about Machiavelli, finally, is that he, you know, although he wrote about power, he wasn't, in the end, a powerful man. He was a failure. After the Republic was overthrown and the Medici came back, his career basically um, hit a dead end. He was tortured by the Medici. Uh, that's how the opera opens, with Machiavelli being tortured. He, never, he didn't have two nickels to rub together, whatever the Florentine version of a nickel is. He ended up making his, his you know, the thing that on the day he died, if you'd asked uh, Florentines, what's this guy famous for? They would have said, for writing sex comedies. He wrote, he wrote uh, plays that are, some of them are still produced, that are hilarious. But, you know, that's, he just... He was a hustler, he had a crazy, rapacious uh, sex life. He just, he's just a really interesting person. But, but in, was he a powerful person? Uh, no, after, after, after his patrons in the Republic got chucked, uh, he, his life was one failure after another. He, he couldn't, the, the Prince, as I said, was never published when he was alive, and he get, gave it, to, you know, he dedicated it first to one Medici, no interest, ignored it. He then gave it to another who's supposed to have preferred, somebody else brought him as a gift to two uh, beautiful uh, dogs. And this Medici loved the dogs and ignored the book, and so the book had no life while he was alive. So writers aren't powerful, but princes are. And I really, because it's today, and I know this isn't about your book, but you wrote a column like a day or so ago about Saudi Arabia and what's happening in Saudi Arabia. And um, can you just talk a little bit about what motivated you to write that piece, other than you know your editor coming to you and saying something bad is happening or something good is happening in Saudi Arabia? Because I thought it was a particularly interesting column. And can you just educate us a little on how should we be patient? Is this a long story that we need to step back from? Or do we need to react? And, so um, I think the uh, important background is that I had a chance to meet this young Saudi crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, twice, two long encounters with him. The most recent was in May when I went to Riyadh. And I wrote in a column after that interview that I thought that his bid to change Saudi Arabia and modernize it was a, a bet worth making for the United States, that this is a country that just is, you know, so caught in its conservatism, its, its deadening consensus, its corruption, its, you know, we've, we've seen the, what is it, the dead weight of that Saudi Arabia on the Arab world, the Muslim world. So I thought the change agent who wants to overturn that and create a new Saudi Arabia, I like that. Um, and he was very forthright with me in the interview and said some things that his aides said, because your highness, you can't say that. He said, no, that, I want to say that. So um, that's the background. Uh, I, I look at what he did last weekend in arresting 11 princes, uh, 
four ministers, dozens, maybe hundreds, we don't know, of Saudis uh, on the very thin pretext that they were involved in corrupt activities. I found it uh, shocking. I think it was a real mistake. My column, this one that I wrote crazily in Charlie Rose's green room, says that the problem is that he started a process where he's going to be driven to ever more extreme measures to keep it going. You know, when you purge 500 people in a country like Saudi Arabia, well, you better get ready to purge the next 500. Because if you think it's over, it's not. So, you know, I, I look at this, Karen, as somebody who wants the project of modernization of Saudi Arabia that he has announced to succeed and who fears that he, um, in his impulsiveness, um, he's just taken on too many battles and that he's going to fail. And if he fails, uh, I, I think that's not, not good for anybody. Interesting. It's time for your questions, which we have time for one or two. So, any questions? Otherwise, I'll just keep asking questions. Yes. <clears throat> Thank you. Uh, so, I, I, this is the second book I've had from you. The first was The Director. And I come originally from Bulgaria. The Director was already translated in Bulgarian. So, you're an internationally recognized author. <laughs> Even in Eastern Europe, the one that you write about. But I wanted to... I, and one observation that I noticed in both books is that you have a style of describing people which reminds me of a uh, kind of forgotten American writer, Raymond Chandler and his Philip Marlowe uh, detective, uh, Private High Stories, where you put a little detail and you suddenly make, I mean, if you read the book and you remember that detail by the end, you say, oh, and I I'm not going to give up two characters in your book, but there is particularly, pay attention, if you haven't read the book, to Dr. Ma and Miss Ford, because there are particular details in the beginning of the book when you first encounter them. So is this something that you do on purpose, or it's just happening as you write? Like, do you pay attention to those details? Um, I, I, I do. You know, the uh, again, I'm not. I, I am. I am a. I'm a hack novelist. I'm not a. I'm not a fancy novelist. So in in, in drawing characters, you know, the the telling detail, the walk, the habitual trait, the you know look of somebody's. Uh, face or, or, or manner, you know, the little detail that you're, that's symbolic of the of the character that recurs. Yeah, that's something that, that you do. It's sort of like the you know the leitmotif in a piece of music. Let me just follow up with that because <clears throat> I'm kind of interested because you you cite to a lot of authors in the book, either directly or indirectly, most directly with Trollope, but also with others and a few philosophers. So. Is there some thriller writer, detective writer, spy writer that you particularly acknowledge as a mentor? So the, the, the person that I like to read the most, and I, often when I'm beginning work on a new novel, I'll go back and reread one of his books, is Graham Greene. Graham Greene is a great writer. You know, he's not the way I'm describing uh, myself. He, you know, he's, he, but, but he writes to entertain. Uh, I have very little, little patience with people who... Uh, experiment too much with form, who are, who are too difficult. You know, I, I've never finished uh, Ulysses, let alone Finnegan's Wake. It's just, you know, can't do it. You're not supposed it. to say that. Well, no. Um, so, um, 
you know, the, the nice thing about being a novelist is you're not supposed to say, you can say whatever you want. Okay. Um, so, uh, anyway, don't let that. Another question? Questions? Okay, well, I have a final question for you, unless somebody comes, okay. Um, which is about our intelligence services. And I kind of, um, you write a lot about n the Central Intelligence Agency and the kind of people it recruits and the kind of people that succeed inside of it. Um, and it's, and, and, and the kind of emotional stamina, rather than intellectual stamina, that the people in it need to have. Um, but in writing these books, and I don't mean just this one, um, you know, the, the Central Intelligence Agency has been under a tremendous amount of attack, reform, pressure. I don't know which one of these you want to pick. Do you foresee a long future for our Central Intelligence Agency? Do you see it in the next um, uh, generation changing significantly? And, and, and I'm just curious if you think this is an institution. I know we're not supposed to challenge our institutions, but I think it's been under an awful lot of pressure. And I'm wondering. You know, I, I, I've written um, in, in my columns, the CIA seems to have a, a permanent kick me sign attached to its backside. And often the one thing that conservatives and liberals agree on is that, that they don't like the CIA. Um, and I think the truth is that as a country we get the intelligence service that we deserve. Uh, you know, if if we don't, um, it's always interesting to me. You know, if you're in a public place at a ballpark, or you know, even in an airport or train station, and somebody in uniform is there, you know, our instinctive reaction, whatever we think about the wars that these people have been fighting, is that we we support them. You know, that we that they represent our country, and we're proud of them, and we all you know we love our military. That wasn't always true, but it's true now. You know, we, we're a country that, weirdly to me, we're a country that doesn't love its intelligence service. And I say that because I think we fight too many wars with soldiers, and it gets us into, into, into difficulties that are really tough. And that they're, you know, keeping our country safe in the world that exists is something that uh, intelligence agencies, intelligence officers, um, are really important in. And so we have a stake in their being really competent, really good at what they do, in their being effective in what they do, in their being lawful in what they do, well overseen by Congress and by, by their bosses. But I, I think, I mean, I, you know, anybody who reads my columns knows I, I personally think that it would be, it's good for the U.S. to have a strong, effective intelligence service. I'm not embarrassed to say that. I don't think it's wrong. I just I think it's you know, something that's important for the country. Um, and I don't think we'll get that if, if that agency is a stepchild and just you know, is kind of um, you know, ill-managed and, and uh, doesn't end up having public support and when it makes mistakes or typically it's ordered to do something by the executive branch and then is left holding the bag, I think you know, we see the effects of that over time. So um, my novels for 30 years have been writing about the ways in which the CIA is dysfunctional, the ways in which its culture is corrosive and is broken, and you know, does, they don't know as enough to do the things that they do or are asked, asked to do. But on the fundamental question, 
do I want them to be uh, effective? And um, the answer is yes, I absolutely do. So um, we're going to wrap up. I just want to say a couple things. Um, the first is, of course, you should totally read this book. Um, especially if you have to think about anything else in your normal life, because it, just, it's, it will just take you away and you will be so happy because you will learn so many things. But I, I also want to say that I think, um, I think you shouldn't minimize who you are as a writer. I think that it all kind of goes together and it's not hack and it doesn't feel like hack when you're reading it. And I think that if, if what you, I mean, one of the questions I was going to ask you that we didn't get to was, you know, what are you thinking when you write? Are you trying to educate? Are you doing this from a self-centered point of view, like trying to figure it out? But I'm not asking you, I'm going to answer for you. Which is that I think you are trying to educate in the best way possible, which is, here are the questions you need to be thinking about. And, um, and you do a really good job. So you should read this book. Thank you for coming. <laughs> Thank, thank you. Thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons, non-commercial, 4.0 international license. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org. <laughs>